0: Welcome to Off The Record. Jesse and I have been enjoying a very hot summer with music and sweating mostly. And we hope you have been enjoying a similarly good summer. Uh, You can find us at offtherecord.fm. We've been getting some more reviews on iTunes lately, and that's been such a big help to keep us in those music podcast charts. So if you have any time... Go to offtherecord.fm and there will be links there to find out how you can rate the show or you can also ask us any questions for feedback uh, that we will usually include in the show itself as well uh, in follow-up. Uh, this week we're going to just start about a topic that I think it's maybe talked about a lot depending on the band, but sort of bands that write the same album over and over again. Um, and I, I think there's sort of two different aspects of that. Sometimes you there's a desire from some fans to like, when a band changes their sound, they want, they were like, oh, I wish that band could just write Deja and again. But then there are other bands that similarly put out the same record over and over again, and it's such a head-scratching thing. Um, so, Jesse, as a producer, I imagine this is something you have to not go through a lot, but probably a good
1: amount, Maybe. Yeah. And it's always an interesting decision because I think we got into this in the last episode is, you know, I really believe you have to write the music you want to hear. And that's the only thing you can do. But then as some bands get really, uh, I don't want to say stuck as sometimes it is just that thing of like the idea of the band is to do this sound. And like, that's a, that could be a cool thing. But then I think what we also see a lot of the time is that then it's like, well, I need to keep paying the rent and I want to keep making these records, even though I'm kind of this idea of this band is kind of a little far past me. But it could be both good and bad. There's, you know, I, you and I worked on an episode that will be on in the future. Uh, and we saw a lot of times that bands make their best records at album five, and that could be developing that sound till. You get you hit that point where you've like really nailed it and explored how to do something original and interesting with that sound
0: yeah I think it really depends there are just some bands that seem to be kind of trapped is maybe the wrong word but there are some bands that just sound like how that band sounds right like there there are some bands where before vocals kick in and it could be a song that I've never heard of where I'd be like oh that's a song by this band uh, and I don't I don't necessarily know why that is i guess as a music fan but i think that's probably somewhere between just how the band naturally writes but then
1: also the kind of pedals or whatever they might use right well i think usually it's in melodic sense i think one of the biggest things that i don't see discussed especially in like music writing because um, so many music writers aren't musicians um the biggest thing I see and one of the biggest things I try to do in my production is I try to not mess with the band's melodic sense. Cause I think that that's really a lot of it is like the way you choose to do chords, what intervals you like to write with and everything. That's so much of the character of a band more than so many aspects that get discussed. I think that that's really a lot of what we hear, Cause like, there's very few bands that aren't evolving, like, which amps and pedals they're using in the studio, and then maybe they're switching producers on some records. I mean, it's actually funny, you know, two of the bands you listed here, um, I believe, have used the same producers for pretty much their entire career. You know, I think it, it is that thing of, like, it's usually just that, like, these people aren't evolving past the same type of melodies that they do over and over and over again. I think, like, one of the most misused things is... um so I'd be like, oh, the tempos are the same on this record. And then it's like always funny to me because these uneducated music writers don't realize, no, the tempos actually vary. You just call it that when you think the songs <laughs> sound the same, which I can't help but laugh at. But you know, some of the sites I read uh, do that quite often.
0: Yeah, why don't we talk about that producer aspect a little more? So that's a good point. I listed uh, on our show notes, which you can find at record.fm. I listed The Dangerous Summer and Rise Against as two examples of bands that – Fans say at least kind of write the same album. And as Jesse just mentioned,
1: uh, I'm not totally sure about Rise Against, but uh, Rise Against is pretty much Bill Stevenson the whole, okay. whole entire career. Got it. I know he did this new one. He did. He certainly did. Um yeah. and so
0: Dangerous Summer have used um Paul Levitt. Paul Levitt each time. Uh and it's kind of funny because I think Paul Le- for in and, and Paul Levitt's sake now, I feel like that is the sound a lot of bands go to him for because they really like that sound. But for The Dangerous Summer by album three, it was just kind of stale. Are there a lot of
1: bands that you have worked with more than three times for... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah? I mean, There's some bands I've been working with for 14, 15 years. But with that said, no one can really say... A great example is, you know, uh, how many records I've done with Morning Glory over the years. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody would ever say that we're making the same record over and over again one of those uh, things where, like, the producer... It's not necessarily an equation that the producer is going to impose the same sound. I think some of it's about the ideas. Like, one of the reasons with Morning Glory we don't make the same record over and over again is Ezra comes in with new influences and kind of reinvents himself a little bit each time, and then I have to roll with it to figure out how we make a good version of that. And I think that that's some of that's bands needing to do that. And then some of it is a thing with the producer of like figuring out how to challenge the band to get to a uh, new and interesting place. Like, you know, a a great example, I think even is like kind of what No Effects and Green Day came up with over the years. It's like, you know, no effects got into doing that thing of, like, you know, they're like, all right, well, this is our sound, but let's do a nine-minute version of it. And a lot of people think, myself included, that when they did The Decline, that that's one of the coolest things they ever did. And same thing with, like, Greed Day, when they did Jesus' Suburbia. Like, they found a way to make this, like, crazy long punk song uh, actually work really well.
0: Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. So I actually had not listened to the cl- The Decline. This is going to be a huge shocker for you ever until about— Maybe a month ago, I think I was on an airplane out west and I was listening to a podcast and someone was just raving about the decline. And this was like the third time within a month this came up and me hearing it, about it rather. Uh, so I was like, I'm going to listen to this. And then I listened to it, I was like, wow, this is really cool. And I think Jesus is a really good example as well by Green Day. And there are definitely examples of that, I think probably throughout bands where that works well. But so when you're in when you're in the studio with a band and it's... Are there situations though where you have to be like, "Hey guys, like remember that time two albums ago where we wrote the same song?" Or is that a less frequent thing?
1: Uh, there's definitely been times, I have to say, usually hopefully during the pre-production phase, um it gets done that you have to say, you know, we did this song already. We got to do something to change this up. And usually that's the vocals. Uh, as much as I think there's a lot of variables of that three the three chords of punk that you know, a lot of people are like oh it's so simple it's just three chords it's not really the truth there's a, like a real infinite amount of variables of what you can do with those three chords and not that it also has to just be three chords but like usually it comes down to a stagnancy in the lyrical themes or the vocal melodies that really like ring true of like what it's gonna be I mean. I think in like a matter of like three and a half years, I did seventy-five songs with Man Overboard or something crazy like that. Right. I don't think any of those were repetitive. Um,
0: God, you have not you have not been to absolute punk, man. Oh yeah. Well, I mean,
1: whatever. Um, those virgins can say whatever they want. Um, there was a constant consciousness when we were making those records of how we evolved the sound. Um, and like, yeah, like, you know, I mean, particularly Wayne in that band would really push for something new to be done, whether it was even like, you know, I think by the time we got to even Real Talk um, and I still did a bunch more stuff with them after that, like, you know, it was like the thing of like we started like doing the subtle little keyboard things here and there and like really figuring out how we like, you know, like I remember like one of the big tricks is like we were setting a lot of the keyboards through the guitar amp. Um, to kind of get it to be like, is that a keyboard? Is that a guitar? And just doing like really, really fine things to just keep upping their sound and like trying to figure out how we get things in there. Yeah, that's interesting. Then on the self-titled the self-titled record, we started doing a lot more of the background vocals being uh, doubled. So there's lots of, not tricks, but just
0: slight variations that keep things fresh, I guess, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. and I, I, and I, But, I, you know, there's a lot of me that, as a music fan, you know, so I think of, like, Lifetime, who's one of my favorite groups of all time, and they did almost all their stuff with Steve Evitz. There was a thing for me where if they had spit out three more Jersey's Best Dancers instead of breaking up the first time... I would have been stoked. They could have just kept going with that sound. And when they did do the comeback record, I mean, obviously, I was a part of some of that, too. Trust me when I say, like, when I got to produce that first 7-inch when Lifetime came back, I was really stoked that it sounded just like old Lifetime. I was also really stoked that I wasn't going to have my name associated with um, one of my favorite bands of all time writing a terrible record. But... Um,
0: Fair, I don't know. I think the music fan aspect is interesting because we're kind. Music fans are kind of just shitty in the sense that, like, yeah, uh, you were stoked that the new lifetime sounded like the old lifetime, right? And mm-hmm. I am. I would be. This is a good. Maybe this is a good example. Uh, so when brand new released Daisy, I rem, I had you know it was like three or four years after the Devil and God had came out. That album had kind of come to like change my life in the sense of what kind of music I was listening to. And because I had listened to that album so many times, I expected track three to sound like Jesus. Uh, uh, and I ex- I expected like track five to sound like Limousine. Like, I think just because these songs were so engraved to me and that like, this is what brand new was. So when Daisy came out, like there's a, there's a song on it called You Stole. And that's kind of like a slower not like a ballad or anything, but kind of like, kind of like Jesus is that same kind of thing.
1: But we're sp- spacious,
0: spacious. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, is this the Jesus of this record? Like, why doesn't it, like, I was trying to make comparisons to the last record to be like, well, how does this work song work when you compare it to that? And I was like, uh, and it took me, it took me a while actually, because I was so engraved in that sound to be like, oh, wait, They're, I just need to think of them as two separate things, right? And then only then really could I like truly digest and really enjoy the record because I wasn't thinking about like, but this song sounds different. <laughs> I was just hmm. being like, this song is different. That's cool. I really like this song. But I feel like with music fans in general, it's, we could get the same album and be angry or we could get the new album and be – we could get a new sound and be angry. Like I don't I don't think at the end of the day there's actually any real sensibility to what we complain about because we complain about
1: everything. Well, here would be my, my devil's advocate against that because I, I don't disagree. But like I think there is something to just make it better. Like, you know, I didn't see many people complaining when Jimmy World really switched things up between Clarity and Bleed America. And that's even using the same producer again. You know, for me, um, I love both of those records, but, like, it was a pretty big change in sound, but I still loved that change in sound and was, like, super, super stoked that they made an amazing record. I think that that, that's a big thing, is it's just, like, you just gotta do, find something else to do that's still good and getting better and improving upon your set, and it's, like, and then it's kind of funny because then after that, Jimmy World made kind of the same record over and over again with, like, some little... Embellishments, but like after Futures, all the rest of the records were just either better or worse version of Futures. I think that's the thing is, is that they got to the What was that? Oh, that's right. You're the person who actually likes. I love Uh, invented. I love invented. But then, oddly enough, a ton of
0: people like Damage, the the new the latest album. And I don't like that one. I mean, I don't dislike that one, but I just find it. I I just find it kind of stale. I wish I could get Trombino to do a record. (laughs) <laughs> but he did do. He did. Uh, what's what's it, what it called? He did uh, invented. I like invented though. I'm saying like I I don't like oh, I don't like damage.
1: I don't think it, it was about production anymore. I think what what I mean. It's stupid to speculate, but I think that they just they lost what they had songwriting wise. Uh, I think that they're they're a little lost on where to go now. I think they've lost their mel- melodic sense. Hm. But you know that's me. So. Uh, not that I'm right or anything, but I think my greater point, though, obviously, is it's just that thing. Of, it's just like find some new way to present your st- stuff to it. I know most people don't like Daisy as much as they like Double to D- God. I sure don't. I just don't think that they found the way to one-up that, and I think that that's the big thing is that you have to, Find that place in you where you're making the music you love and can find uh, a way to challenge and set yourself apart. Like, you know, so you, you add this link to that Gaslight Anthem interview where they're talking about reinventing themselves, which is kind of funny because I feel like a lot of people are like, this songs that we've heard of this record sound just like the last Gaslight stuff. So I don't know how true that is. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the band, so I, I can't really tell.
0: Yeah, I Uh, I, I guess if we're going to like to strictly mention Gaslight Anthem really quickly, like I would agree. I think that like the the title track, Get Hurt, is a really sad, slow song. And that's more along the lines of a 10-inch they put out at Record Store Day a couple years ago. And I love that. And I hope all their songs are really sad because I'm a sad person. But I I agree. But I I thought like the topic, I, I thought the quote was interesting because I wanted to bring up as someone that does a music website, um, I think a lot of reinventing yourself doesn't necessarily only have to do with sound. Like, I feel like so much of it is also how you present it. Uh, So I think the Four Year Strong album, which we touched upon about this episode that Jesse alluded to that will get posted sometime soon, they they said six months ahead of time or longer that they were going to be changing their sound in a drastic way. And it scared fans. They said that in February and the album didn't come out until November. And it really scared fans. They're like, if it's not broke, you know, and I think Four Year Strong is a good example of fans wanted this kind of quote unquote easy core sound. So but however, you don't I have no idea what would have happened if Four Year Strong released uh, in some way, shape or form without eight months out teasing that there's gonna be this major shift in sound and then all of their fans kinda had a major, major backlash against them, um, and I think even in a managerial role too. I would never, I would never want to be telling my fans that love my band because they sound in this way that we're going to be changing everything and it's going to sound like Foo Fighters when my fans are sixteen to twenty four year olds and they want to run around Warp Tour. Um, so I feel like how you actually pre- present yourself to your fan base, to the quote-unquote, like, blog media or whatever is really important in that,
1: too. I think that that's a great point, and the way bands kind of sell these changes can be a uh, an influence on them, but I don't think that you can... You can't, like, make a, band, a fan like it just because you present it the right way, but I think you can help influence some of what uh, happens with it. I think a really... Interesting thing, and one of my favorite things that I saw um, Transit do after Young New England. Um, everybody who didn't receive like what they heard on Young New England and was tweeting about it. Uh, Tim went in and wrote, "I'm really sorry to hear that." Back at them, <laughs> I think that was a very interesting thing because what you'd see in the reaction of the fans was like a very apologetic thing, and I think it almost made like the fans like less apt to be vocal about not liking what they hear after that and uh i think that's an interesting psychology too because like you know obviously when you see that the person that you you know you loved their last record they did that you might give that record another chance and you know there's a lot of music if you just you know i always joke that there's some terrible records i actually really like just because i've listened to them so many times i got used to their terribleness and uh I think that that is a thing and not to say to put that record in a thing of that. It, it's terrible, but maybe the person get gives it another shot and it lines up with them emotionally that next day. And then you don't have a fan that hates your new record.
0: Yeah. I think the transit album, similar to the for your strong album in a in a different sense is a good example for this as well. Um, especially when you have bands that are hopefully like loved universally. Like there are a lot of transit fans that didn't love young new England, but truly like love the the whole rest of their catalog um and mm-hmm. so me personally i don't love young new england uh, but i am looking forward to hopefully liking their next album because i do believe bands can make missteps to the listener whether they're missteps to the band or not that's a different kind of thing but to the to the music fan like it is always it is a bummer I think if a music fan like just turns their back on a band after one piece of material that they didn't like. If it's like six albums deep and you don't want to hear the same Rise Against album a seventh time, like I get that. <laughs> but for a, for a band who's released consistently good music and you just didn't like something, I think that's a little bit different. Um, sometimes I won't like another release by a band until it's like three albums later, but I'll really like it and that's awesome. Like I'm not that's not a bad thing. Yeah, totally. Our first sponsor this week, new sponsor is snapback slim. Uh, snapback slim is a minimalist wallet that I personally have used every day for over a year now. Um, they just launched the second iteration of their wallet after having a successful Kickstarter, and you can find that at snapbackwallet.com. For off-the-record listeners this week, you can use the code "Off the Record" all one word, for free U.S. shipping or just $2.50 off of international shipping. Um, these wallets are just really great. I uh, generally don't like really big wallets, and these are... Really high-quality elastic that keep all your credit cards or money or cards, whatever you got in there, well, kept together, handcrafted and made in the USA. Uh, They have a sleek profile and can handle 10 cards or more. So go to snapbackwallet.com and be sure to use Off the Record if you pick one up as a coupon code. We'll also have a link to these in the show notes uh, just in case you forget what the link is. So thank you to Snapback Slim for sponsoring Off the Record this week. The second uh, thing we want to talk about is was a story that got published on this uh, good new website called The Runout. And it's it was called the merch gap. If you go to a pop punk show, you may see a shirt being sold for fifteen dollars if the venue is I don't know, let's say a thousand cap. If you go to warp tour, that same shirt's gonna be twenty dollars. If you go to a show where the venue maybe holds twenty five hundred people, that same shirt could be thirty dollars. And if you go to let's say an arena show, tour, that show could be forty dollars. Uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot that sort of goes into that from the concert, from the to, from the venue standpoint to the type of band to the manager to the other bands on their tour and it's a pretty interesting topic I think because most fans or most people in life don't know how much things cost to make uh and that puts uh the team behind the bands making the music in an interesting place to either try to make an honest living or try to quote unquote like rip fans off uh I have a question, though, Jesse. When you were growing up and going to punk shows in New Jersey and New York, how much did merch cost?
1: I mean, actually, you know, what is funny is is it could be anything from, like, a six-stop. Like, so my band, for example, it was a very big thing at the time to do. Um, you would go to uh, the Salvation Army or you'd go to a place called Working Gear and you'd get these construction shirts or these be these, like, um, you know, uniforms of, like, some blue-collar job, and then you would silk screen your band's logo onto them. So you'd have, like, Harry's name tag on something, and you'd sell those for $6 at a show because it cost you $2.50 to make them and buy them uh, from that. But $12, I think, was a very common thing. Uh even back then of like if it was an actual printed T-shirt with a nice design, like, you know, granted like back then a nice design was nothing compared to these like crazy full color cartoons of bears doing weird things and stuff <laughs> and that we got into for a couple of years here. But like uh, I don't think that 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 the DIY show stuff changed. Like, you know, a perfect example is like I went and saw white long the other day and it was just as unprofessional as it was when I was young. Like I walk up church, twelve dollars. I have 15. He's like, I don't have any change, just so you know. So he's like, take a 7-inch, I guess, if you want. I'm like, wow, okay. Sure, guys. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I had a similar experience. Not a punk
0: band, but this band, Sorority Noise. Uh, I was just watching them. They opened for Modern Baseball on their recent tour, and I was just sitting with the singer Cam talking with him, and these uh, fans are coming up buying merch, and he's like, Oh man shit I only have 13 bucks or something And let's say it costs 15 He's like oh dude no problem Just here you go So I feel I feel like that like ethic or whatever Is still definitely alive with some bands
1: Yeah so, some bands Whereas I think that bands in general though Have gotten a little more professional Because like when I was growing up That was like every You know it's the same thing you, you know I'm a guy who wrote a book on the music business And we'd show My old band would show up to shows And we'd have no change <laughs> I'm not, not, not the man I used to be at, uh, 18 years old.
0: It's just really, really just a shame. I am the same person. Yeah. That's the
1: difference between three years and double
0: my age. (laughs) Um, So, so it used, so $12 though, maybe, right. That would be a fair thing. And, and so today I think the average is probably around 15. Um, and what I want to, Get into a little bit is kind of it's a similar thing for vinyl. Like when I see, so I know how much this stuff costs. So to, to fill in for someone that might not for my for someone that might not know, if you want to order fifty or a hundred t-shirts, not like ten colors on them, but let's say th- one to five colors or so, and it's not like a super super high quality t-shirt, but somewhere between Gildan and American Apparel. You can get fifty to hundred T-shirts for five to six dollars max. Um, that's just how much they cost, and so that means when a band sells a shirt, their hopeful, you know, their hopeful uh, profit minus the cost of shipping or whatever they might have needed to pick up those shirts was about uh, double or two and a half times the cost. Um, so that's great. That that's kind of normal business. Uh, that's a really good profit margin. Similar to vinyl, if you order a thousand records, um, it's probably five to five to six and a half dollars per unit. So if you have a band selling or a record or a label selling a 12 inch record for 12 to 15 dollars, it's kind of in a lot of ways, similar to a t-shirt. Um, but it, you know, it's when I see a label selling an unlicensed record, meaning they own the rights to a record for 25 bucks and it's a single LP that kind of infuriates me a little while because I know they just made $20 of profit on that. Um, but with t-shirts, so man overboard is actually an interesting, uh, Band in that sense. On Warped Tour, they were the only band last year that sold their T-shirts for fifteen dollars, while everyone else sold them for twelve dollars. I'm sorry, not twelve. <laughs> that sounds bad. When everyone else sold their T-shirts for twenty dollars, Man Overboard stuck to fifteen, and fifteen is sort cert- of um, twenty and fifteen are certainly like very acceptable for shows. But then there gets into a whole thing about well, some bands are selling their stuff for thirty, or you might go to a venue and these shirts are getting to
1: thirty-five or forty. Um, Jesse, do you want to explain price matching at all? Yeah. So, a lot of contracts on tours, for example, will say that you have to, let's say there's three openers for this Big Bad. The Big Bad uh, that started the tour, the headliner, will say, you have to sell your merch. You can't sell your merch for cheaper than me. That'll be in you, sometimes your contract, your conditions. Not every tour, but Ulama. But whenever it wasn't the case, um, when I was managing Man Overboard, um, You know, we kind of came up with the policy to always undercut the other bands and sell for a little cheap because we'll sell more and we'll make up that profit. And, you know, the other thing about merch we have to always remember is this is somebody who's a walking advertisement for your band. So getting more of it out there just creates more sales, kind of making sure that you get that sale you get that walking advertisement. It's way more important to sell more than get every dollar you can from the one person. Cause the more people you can get that shirt on, the more your music's going to spread. There's going to be more people who want to wear your shirt. Right. Right. And
0: yeah. And so with
1: price matching, like it's a tricky
0: thing because on am on the one hand I get it, but also it kind of just sucks for those smaller bands, especially when they might only be getting a hundred dollar guarantee a night. And, uh, you know, a new, a potential new fan might not want to buy their shirt for 25 bucks, but probably would have, if they could have sold it for 15. And that same kind of thing translates at scale to bigger venues as well. Uh, if you are, if a band is lucky enough to play a very, very large venue, meaning they have, uh, a large fan base and are growing rapidly, like let's say a Best Buy theater in New York that, um, they might not be selling the merch for themselves. There might be a merch uh, seller at the venue.
1: Is that is there a proper term for that? Yeah, I mean, well, we should say this: that somebody who's employed by the venue to sell it instead of you bringing your merch person on tour. Right. Um, the venue will supply you with one because they want to make sure you're not undercutting any uh, undercutting them and selling that. So, like Roseland Ballroom, which just closed in New York, was a prime example of that. Is that usually they'd make somebody else one of the employees of Roseland sell the merch for you.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I just went to a show I saw brand new at a, like an amphitheater kind of venue this week. And same thing. That's generally always the case for like an amphitheater or a, uh, like a, uh, like a basketball arena kind of tour. Uh, And so also important to note that venues will often take merch cuts. um, And a lot of bands try to cheat merch cuts, which is good for the bands and good for everyone involving the band. But if you have a merch seller employed by the venue, they know uh, what your count in and count out numbers of merch will be. So that might mean you count in a hundred shirts. If you sold eighty of them, they know exactly how much you sold, and that means they're going to say if you didn't give them whatever, let's say ten percent, that that might be an issue. Uh, have you did you have to deal with merch, uh, venue cuts a lot? That's kind of like oh, an interesting topic, knuckle pucker sort of just going through that for the first time since they just sort of did their first real tour with Man Overboard. And it's it was just kind of funny to talk through it with them and then be like, but what do you mean? Is
1: it okay to lie? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, there's part of me that has a lot of resentment for this practice. And I think that that's the thing is anytime there's resentment for like a law or a policy, you're going to get cheating. And like, I think it's just a thing of like, it's so... I mean, it's sadly necessary because these venues have trouble staying in business um, on the one hand. And they do need this money in order to keep paying the insanely high insurance rates that labels uh, that venues have to pay these days. But at the same time, too, it's just like, well, you know who else is poor? Musicians. And uh, it gets into a really interesting uh, thing. But, yeah, there's ways to cheat it. Um, I think that there's... You know, the other thing, too, is is while there's ways to cheat it, when you have a half-retarded merch guy, um, there's ways that you get cheated. Like, if your merch guy is not really, or a girl, whatever, I shouldn't be gender-specific, but, uh, you know, if they're not really good at doing this, you know, and they mess up counts all the time, like, you're paying money you shouldn't have to pay to a venue.
0: Yes, yeah, and it's a a tricky thing, and these are things, like, i would imagine like most general listeners might not know, but when you actually are in a touring band and you 're playing uh, more than sort of basement shows or small shitty venues, then you do have to do things like count in your merch and you know keep a record of exactly what you sold and you might want to have uh, how much that product sold and what kind of the uh, the profit margin is on that and then a venue cut may be anywhere from ten to twenty percent or less or more, and then there's there's always a conversation of like. If the ven if uh if the venue needs four hundred dollars technically because you sold that much, uh eh, let's only give them fifty. And that happens all the time. And Warp Tour that happens on Warp Tour all the time too, which is pretty interesting as well. Uh because Kevin Lyman is usually pretty good about that and that's really cool because he understands everyone's just trying to make their money. Um and he's probably gonna look out more for the bands and the venues that they're playing at. Um but I don't know. I, I just think it's a really interesting topic to bring uh, people that don't need the knowledge of that into, uh, especially when you sort of get into like punk ethics versus like metal ethics or whatever. Uh, you know, a black veil, a black veil bride, black veil bride fan may have no problem paying thirty dollars for a shirt, and that's not like anything against them. That's great for the band, but I think just because of the ethics and the morals, like there's no way a boy or girl the same age of the black veil brides fan is going to be stoked to pay $30 for like a knuckle puck shirt and it's a it's a
1: really interesting thing i think that's al- that's always been there though too is that you know it just in general i mean i, I th- you know it's funny though because if like you get into the metal scene like you know like around like the black metal scene of like saint vitus in brooklyn it is very similar to the punk, uh, ethic and like that, you know, you got to keep that merch price reasonable, but like when you get into commercial metal, it's just like, yeah, especially when you're selling to teenage teenagers and you get into like the rise core thing and all that stuff. It's just like, it's so, you know, it's take them for all that you can take them for kind of type of thing. And I think that's also a thing of that. Those consumers aren't as, You know, while I may be disappointed at your uh, generation of punk's uh, materialism compared to mine, the generation before mine was disappointed in NARS, I think it's just a thing of like when you're selling to a more savvy uh, scene of people who revolt against materialism, you have to sell for a cheaper amount of money. I really love the term commercial metal. I don't don't know that I've ever heard that before. Uh I I don't know know how many people say it outside of me, but I definitely say it a good about. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> that is a good one. It's something. It's something I don't want to hear.
0: <laughs> yeah, and so uh, the the whole article is really worth a read, um,
1: and that'll be in the show notes. Um, you know what we didn't touch on that I thought you you uh, mentioned very quickly too is like, you know, keeping track of what sells of your merch and what's not selling is such an interesting thing. Like, you know, like a lot of what really helped um, us with Man Overborn is like, Justin and I were like ruthless in like figuring out correlations between like what was working merch wise. Like, you know, even just figuring out at one point that like gray t-shirts were working really, really, really well for us and putting more designs on gray helped us sell way more merch. And we would just sit and look at our sales data from the website and from tours, and figure things out like that. Just try to find the correlation of like what matches up with like what's selling well. And that's tough; like, it's really yeah, it's really tough.
0: We're just sort of going through this with Knucklepuck now because the band is, you know, gratefully growing, and uh, you know, we're having trouble sort of getting enough designers uh, to make new and interesting merch so we can keep selling merch, hopefully. And it's so hard to see. There's such, there's typically such a difference between what some band members would like to sell and how none of those shirts might sell at all. Like, the, drum, yeah. the drummer of Knucklepuck, like he hates all the merch we do, and he, because you know, he, he's like, he likes hardcore music, he likes punk music, and that's not really the kind of merch we can sell to our fan base. That doesn't mean we need to sell like neon-y, gimmicky shit, but it's like there's still a difference, and it's so hard to. Cater to cater to your audience, rightfully so, but still make merch that you like and hope it sells instead of making continually maybe merch that you find aesthetically pleasing that isn't going to sell to your band's fan base at all. And those are, like, actually tough decisions because a band has to see that on tour every day.
1: Yeah, and even finding the correlations of that stuff, it's, like, it's a really tough one to do in, in some senses, too, because it's, like... You know, you're seeing a lot of gray shirts get sold, but for all you know, it's just – it's really about that design uh, or whatever. And even like, you know, sizes is a little easier to do is that you just start to see like I should be ordering more medium than anything else because medium sells the best and small sells the best. But then if you're like, you know – Uh, It's like, you know, I can remember like, you know, like when there was more dates in the Midwest, though, all of a sudden the sizes kind of went up that we had to order because the Midwest just isn't as skinny as the uh, Northeast. And yep, (laughs) yep. it's just one of those things. And like, you you know, you start to see those things. You start to learn what to order and learning what to order is a big, big, big deal on it. You know, keeping that profit margin uh, in a good place. It's tough, though, to find that. Like, especially like in a design correlation, is like you know, you like let's say you're doing one of those lyric T-shirts. And you're like, oh well, that one worked well for us. But what you don't realize is it was just that particular lyric was one of the lyrics people liked more, and the new one that you printed, eh, everybody's not as into that lyric as it was that the other one. And then all of a sudden, you're not selling as many of that. It's it's such it's, a it's 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 so it's just
0: like a mind warp because there's no. You're playing like a system. It's it's like the stock. It's not like the stock market, but it is in the sense that like there's really no true rhyme or reason. It's just personal. Like you can't predict what every one of your fans will like.
1: Um, it's and, just yeah. too many vari- too many variables to be be empirically p- predictive.
0: And it what really sucks is that guess what? You got to order 400 shirts to take on tour or something, or maybe not 400, but you know, like you you're gonna yeah. you're if you're ordering a hundred shirts like that's going to be five or $600 plus the cost of design and then you may not sell like any of them and it's such a it's such a hard thing and this we we only did a very small quantity of this for knuckle puck but we made a uh, waffle house like rip off shirt and only people in the south buy it because no one else knows what waffle house is and that's just like you know like that's a clear variable but we didn't necessarily think it all the way through at the same time we only made like 50 shirts so no big deal we've sold them but it's, there's just another good example of, like, you really got to think about what you're doing when you're making and printing merch. And it's so – sometimes it's awesome, but, again, like, it is all about that lyric stuff, too. That's a good example. Like, it, this lyric might hit me hard. Uh, I am a 21-year-old white male in Philadelphia, and I go to college. Like, But I don't know if it's going to hit a 17-year-old girl or guy hard or a 26-year-old dude, whatever, like – there's just so many
1: variables, and God knows what kind of merch you like dressing in now. I mean, I buy—I mostly wear band T-shirts, but you know, I wear black T-shirts with white ink and no lyrics on them. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I have—I have my bikini kilk shirt on right now. You know, my lyric shirts—that's so surprising oh. to me. Yeah, that and um, you, you know, for me, Mister Health Conscious, uh, Waffle House ain't working either. True. I I figured you were going to be more of a tie guy, tie dye guy, but I guess I was wrong. Oh my God, I can. You know, my that's you want to talk about generational differences in merch. When I was in high school and I was growing up in punk, the Grateful Dead and Fish were still big bands. So like. The idea that, you know, like when, when Knuckle Puck came to the studio and they were all wearing tie dyes, I was like, what in the hell? Like, this was everything we hated as a generation of punk. And to see that be popular now, that blows my mind because we, we were like rebelling against that. Like, you know, you're like, if you were a tie dye to a punk show, you'd be left out of there when yeah. I was young.
0: No, I'm compl- I hate tie dye. I have never owned a tie dye thing. I will never wear a tie dye thing. Like, uh but it's funny same age like m- month apart like joe the singer of knuckle puck loves tie-dye truly like always wears tie-dye and i'm like god i don't get it and it is like a super pretty recent craze i think within probably the last three years where it's just like tie-dye sells <laughs> tie-dye tank tops tie-dye shirts whatever they just sell and it's
1: it's crazy only really only during the summer but still like well, you know, but in, then there's the early 2000s camouflage merch craze for a while. That was that was, that was a real big one. I had a lot of camouflage shirts. Ooh,
0: that seems dark to me. I'm glad I was too young
1: for that. That just doesn't seem good. <laughs> doesn't seem good at all. I, 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 there's very few fashion moves I've made in my life where I look back on poorly. Hopefully no one leaks any pictures of me in a leather jacket after I said that. <laughs> um that but the camo thing, I, I look back on that poorly. I will Photoshop your face next to the, on one of the guys
0: from Black Veil Brides in that picture we all took together, and <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how I'll think about it. Nice, cool. So two smaller topics uh, that we got that we want to just run through a little quicker than the normal segments. Uh, we got I got a listener question uh, a few weeks ago about uh, earplugs and. Um, What are my thoughts or our thoughts on wearing them to shows uh, like audience members, not necessarily a band member. And if there's something uh, you should be doing if you don't do them or vice versa. For a quick little anecdote, the end of summer, I guess this would have been 2011, end of summer 2011 going into my freshman year school, I got an earache, like an earache for the first time. Um, or an ear infection, sorry, an ear infection for the Mm -hmm. first time. I had never had one. Maybe I had one like as a child, but I don't remember. And, um, it was really painful. And my like ear, my, my eardrum ended up popping and that's something that can happen. Um, I guess I didn't know that was a thing that could actually happen, but it did happen. And uh, I had to go to the doctor and it was a horribly painful thing. But so my doctor recommended that I go to like an ear specialist just to like check out that I was okay so I did some tests and she's like, you know, you have you have kind of substantial hearing loss in your left ear. Do you play music at all? Or do you like are you involved in music at all? I was like, well, I play guitar, I go to a lot of shows, and she's like, How many shows a year? And I was she's like, What what do you mean, like five or ten? I was like, No, like sixty minimum probably a year. And like I could just see her eyes like pop out of her head and suddenly be very concerned. And she's like, just so you know. There are, disi- there are different decibel levels of sound. The the uh, the, fre- the uh, high decibels that you hear at a show, meaning how loud the music is, ears should te- technically only be exposed to that for 15 minutes before they are at risk of hearing loss. So I was like, oh, that's cool. I've only been to like 200 shows. I'm going to be deaf soon. And so from that day on, I got molded for like in-ears, uh, which are... The kind of, uh, I guess, earplugs that a lot of musicians wear on stage, and I wear them to almost every show. I remember to take them to now. Um, Jesse, you are a producer. Your ears are more important to yours than mine.
1: Yeah, you know the funny thing—I don't wear earplugs, and I'll tell you why. Is uh, earplugs push the wax in, and what I learned about myself is I have a weird-shaped ear canal where it kind of takes a dive. So me pushing earplugs in, um, makes it so that, uh, I, uh, push the wax down and then that wax is impossible to get taken out unless I go into an ear doctor and get my ears vacuumed, which I've had to do a couple times now. Um, which is like also to say this, getting your ears vacuumed while it's a hundred some odd dollars, if you don't have insurance or, you know, $15, if you do. Um, it takes about four minutes. You're, you walk right in and out of there and there's no pain at all. But, um, cause I have to work every day and you know, like oh, so much of my job is as a mastery engineer, I have to have my ears consistent, good every day. When I go to most shows, I stand in the back and I put my fingers over my ears. Um, and I, while I may look like a dork, um, You know, the ladies don't seem to mind too much, though. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, while I may look like a dork, uh, it keeps me hearing well. Um, With that said, um, I will oftentimes buy a pair of earplugs uh, at a show, and then uh, I won't put them in my ears very far. Just enough, but I'll put them on, and I will stay as far back as I can to not uh, damage my ears. Um, It's very, very rare you're going to see me anywhere near the front of a show, and you're definitely not going to see me with earplugs jammed really far into my ears. I tend to use those bulky, big ones because the other thing about it, too, is is like those earplugs that you have, those ears, you have to keep those things really clean or you can be putting nasty infections in. And when I used those years ago, I had those for a lot of years. My ears kept getting, like, funky and clogged because I wasn't cleaning them properly and, like... You know, this is a really delicate thing That is really, really, really important for me You know, even today um, I didn't sleep much last night And so, like, I can kind of tell My hearing's not, like, where it should be um, Today But thankfully, I'm just tracking some piano and vocals And I don't have to get the sounds really That much, since uh, we're just going to replace The sounds of the piano later, so
0: Totally, yeah So I would just say, because we don't want to spend too much time on this That, like If you go to a lot of shows a year, like even if you're not getting custom made ear plugs, you should probably like maybe get those ones that you can buy at CVS or something. Uh, I do certainly notice that when I walk out of a show without uh, without wearing mine that I have ringing in my ears for a little for a while, but if I do wear them and I leave, I am totally fine and I feel good and I feel like I've not heard music very loud for three hours. So I do think it's important um, and just kind of a smart move, especially because you can at least get those ones at CVS. You can get like, I don't know, 20 or something for like five bucks. Not really a terrible
1: deal. I mean, I mean, even smarter if you go to shows as much as you do. I don't go to shows as much as you do. Um, The even smarter to do is uh, go on Amazon and buy one of those hundred packs and get a dispenser for your room. That's what I did all in my early life before I was like, you know, record producer every day. Like, you know, I, I so I worked in two different clubs. Um, three, three to four nights a week growing up. And that's what I would do. And I was, you know, I was the sound guy too and the concert promoter. And I'd still wear the earplugs because there's no way, especially if I had to go on stage and move a snare drum mic and put my ear next to the hi hat. You know, if you're in a band, especially, you need to figure something out because you're going to go deaf if yeah. you're in a small room and you're practicing all the time.
0: It's insane to me how many bands I see that don't wear anything. And I'm just like, that's wild. There's so many. I be. I feel like way more don't than do, and it's like I get very yeah, concerned for them. I agree. Very concerned for them because it's just, they do that a hundred times a year or more, and it's just like oh, uh, and that you know on top of not counting practicing and recording and blah blah blah. It's like that sucks for you in ten years.
1: Well, Zach, you know what we should do? We should open a hearing aid business. That'd be mm, okay. <laughs> number you ready for you ready for another business yeah
0: I was thinking about I, we, as long as it's a cool email address or I don't have to get a new email address that would be great I got a lot of email addresses right now <laughs> too many nice uh, um, so our last quick topic and this is kind of like a fun one is just sort of vinyl habits and there's just really like three things we can go down the list um, do you budget yourself
1: or do you just buy vinyl um my rule is uh if it's a record that I feel is a classic record um and a record that has stood some test of time for me then I'm allowed to buy it whenever I see it so a perfect example is like you know I could be walking down the streets of the city with like you know girl I'm dating or whatever and like I will walk by a stand and I go, oh you know hey look they have primal scream Exterminator and it's seven dollars <laughs> um, sure I. I walk right up and buy it right the second I see it there. But um, for me, my vinyl buying habit, uh, a lot of it now comes down to eBay of me. Um, So particularly lately, I've been trying to buy a lot of the records I've done on vinyl because Mike, my partner in the studio, keeps telling me that we have to have a nice wall of all the vinyl. And so like I keep sending you stuff, man. You, you know, do keep sending me stuff, which I do appreciate. But you know, even just get a, getting getting uh, what do you call it? Like you know, I, I didn't until this last week have say anything as a real boy, which I, you know I worked on uh, a uh, one of the vinyl bonus tracks on, and I didn't have uh, saves the day, sound the alarm, and so like we've just been. I my vinyl habits are mostly when I see or I think of something, I just buy it, but. I also have enough money to do that.
0: Yeah. For me, my habits have kind of greatly changed. I I think the first record I ever bought was a Newfound Glory record at Bamboozle years ago and I I really didn't know what vinyl was at all. I was just kinda like, this is big.
1: Oh Jesus, what?
0: I didn't know. Like I just didn't know. I don't I was really I was young. I don't know, I was like fifteen. I was fifteen and this was two thousand and eight or whatever. Like no one knew what vinyl was at my age end. There was no vinyl
1: being made. Think about it. That's a fair thing. Uh I, I don't know about this. There was no vinyl being made. I can't think of not for
0: bands that I was like not for bands. I was like, listen, I, yeah. I don't mean like no vinyl being made. I just mean like for for what I was listening to, right? Like, there's no at this time there's no like Blink One Eighty Two on vinyl. There was no brand new on vinyl. Like that was not happening, and so it was not. It was not like none of the bands that I was listening to had pre order options that included vinyl. For instance. Um, okay, that's an interesting right. way to put it. Yeah, so that's what I mean. Like, there was no opportunity for me to get argue like to an extent to like get the music that I liked on vinyl, and I also had no interest in it. I was just totally oblivious to it. Um, so then, like, I didn't really buy much, and then Blink 182s vinyl started getting pressed via uh, Mightier Than Sword, and I bought everything. <laughs> and then I didn't buy vinyl again for a while, and but then since then, I think my I will just pre-order a record, assuming I like it. I like it. I, I think it's good. And with me, I, I think we talked about this recently too. Like, there's not much music that I li- that I don't like now that I liked five years ago. It's like it's I my music collection grows, and I rarely feel the need to like delete anything from my library. So if a uh, record's coming out, I will just pre-order it, or I will buy it at the merch table. I have now a nice, one of those nice Ikea Expedits, I think they're called. Yes, pretty, yes, that's what it's called. Pretty much all filled up or getting filled up. And I like my vinyl collection. I also run a record label, so I kind of need to do that. But um, there's not really much to talk about here. I was just curious
1: about how much you buy. Well, I, I but you know I think it is interesting is, is that, you know, so like um, – We hit on this a little bit, uh, this episode we keep referencing that we're going to put out one day. and uh, But, like, you know, I had no option but to buy vinyl because so much of this stuff, when I was growing up, it was just on vinyl. Bands would be so punk they wouldn't put it on CD. And uh, I think that there's even a big thing for me now that it's just, like, also, like, you know... I love the convenience of digital, and if I'm buying vinyl, it's because I want to hear a different perspective on this record. Because I enjoy this record so much, I want to hear it in a new way, and that's really all it is for me. Because nine times out of ten, I'm just going to stream it off audio when I'm just like listening and consuming it. And if I'm like writing, I'm definitely not putting on vinyl. True. So, do you do you listen much to records? I you know. For me, it's a very big thing of, um, a lot of the time I'll do it socially. So like with friends, it'll be like, okay, you know, somebody's over, let's put it, let me show you what this, because the other thing about it is, you know, uh, we, you and I have gotten into this a bit, but for the listener, it's like, you know, I have a $2,000 speaker set. I have a, uh, that costs $2,000. I have a thousand dollar record player. So When my friends come over, they they love a record. You can hear it in a way that you're probably never going to hear it again. And while this compares nothing to like somebody like Alan Douches, who has a twenty thousand dollar record player that floats on air, and I've gotten to listen to a lot of, oh yeah, it's amazing. And I, you know, I've gotten to listen to a ton of vinyl on that thing when uh, I worked for him for years. Um, it's an amazing experience that you really can hear when you're listening to a record, especially if you're in an equilateral triangle to your speakers, which, you know, if you want to talk about even not having to spend money, just putting your speakers in an equilateral triangle to your ears of where you work all day or listen to music is one of the greatest things for hearing music in a better way that you'll ever do to yourself. And you can do that with like a $200 pair of speakers that you'll even hear way better than if you're just listening off a laptop or a jam box or whatever.
0: Yeah, it's been really cool for me to like see, not to toot your horn, but to see just some things where it's like, the acceptance record is a great example. There's another record that we're doing that I can't talk about yet, but uh, the acceptance record is a good example for now where I listened to it and I thought something was wrong because I was hearing things that I had never heard before. And then I was like, Oh no, this was just buried in the original mixer master or whatever. And, and that's really cool when you can noticeably tell things are different. And we even got a good amount of comments when people are st- first starting to get their records being like, wow, this sounds like really incredible. So that's, always cool as well um and this other thing that you worked on recently is great as well but we
1: can't well i about. even you know the thing i was most proud of that we've done so far that, that is out is um that valencia record uh ha- i never realized that it was really the mastering that was the complaint a lot of people had with that record um and i kind of undid some of the bad mastering by actually lowering it in volume so it wasn't clipping out the converters so much and then I did a whole bunch of reprocessing on it, but, um, I think we really got that to sound way, way, way better. And that's an important cool thing with the vinyl remasters too, is, is like, you know, while I may have written that article for you that talked about how vinyl is not always superior to digital, there's times vinyl can be a whole new, amazing experience when it's a good cut and everything. Uh, There's even a thing that I thought was really interesting that that I've just been learning recently. So I've been doing a ton of vinyl archiving work lately. Um, And it's amazing to see how many times the vinyl mastering engineer was just, you know, um, particularly with older stuff, they were just smoking the rocks that day and the stereo spectrum is off on the vinyl. So that the left side or the right side is not fully balanced and you're not getting all the stuff in the center the way you should. And I've been like having to readjust that on a bunch of these, um, you know, I've been trying, I've been doing a lot of, um, records that people can't find the masters for and, uh, transferring the the vinyl down just so that there's something that could exist of this for archives for a few labels. And, uh, it's crazy to see how bad that vinyl mastering is sometimes. And, you know, that, if we can't find the bastards for these recordings this is all we got too yeah
0: a lot of even beyond goes into that and that's something that we i feel like you thomas and i have been learning together where it go, there's also more stuff like how long should each side of the record be like should this song be on the a side or the b side depending on uh the length of your minutes and then you can get your vinyl cut at different specialists to make something sound better um And we did do that. We went to a special place called Salt Mastering for Acceptance and Valencia, and that even helped more. And so there's so much you can do with vinyl. It's really interesting. So your article was right, but it was also up to, like, debate. Not debate, but there's just so much you can do, I think.
1: Well, I I think it's it's, it's more like it's what I say in the article is that, you know— it's just I think that people think in general vinyl is superior to digital. And it's like, no, there's so many bad quality things that can happen during the vinyl process that people don't pay attention to that can make it so the vinyl is actually way inferior to the digital version. And uh, I think that that really is a thing. You know, it's even been a very interesting thing for me is um, so as we all often joke, I listen to a lot of nerdy dance music. Um, how much of that stuff transfers poorly onto vinyl? Because perfect example, like the record I really like to talk about this with is uh, Skrillex's Bangarang record.
0: Because mm-hmm.
1: that record is so much about the digital wall of sound and like basically peaking it out, the vinyl version just sounds strange. It's really, really weird because the mixes just don't translate and move the way they do on a digital master. That's interesting. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought about that. Yeah, and like there's like just this thing of because like if you think of it like, you know, so for people who aren't as big of a nerd but are interested in this is like digital has this absolute volume that you can't go over and vinyl does not have that. It's kind of this free-flowing thing and just as you do that, you get a different type of distortion that's not as harsh and a brick wall of distortion Um, analog as you like push it hard. It slowly saturates whereas digital is like this hard cutoff point a uh, volume there's something about that record because that record so much of its power is about the volume and manipulating where that brick wall limiting happens that it's like on vinyl it's just strange and I actually bought it because uh, I was curious what a record would sound like that was like that and you know I was um at Urban Outfitters getting my usual terrible service from a girl wearing a man overboard shirt who's giving me a hard time and uh what do you call it it sounded totally strange but then you know another record that i just got you know i just bought the award record on vinyl and that sounds amazing
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah um even though that's a cold digital record the space in it really just comes alive on vinyl totally um cool well you have any recommendations this week i saw the internet's own boy the Aaron swartz story um and uh I cried for 35 minutes 40 minutes it's a really really sad movie and uh but it's really important and it talks a lot about net neutrality and uh how important he was to the development of internet and the zeitgeist around what the internet is today and uh Yeah, it's just an incredible documentary.
0: And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. I have it downloaded and ready to watch, hopefully, if I get some break between my email addresses this week. Um, I would recommend, and this is a conflict of interest recommendation, but Park's new record, Jacob the Rabbit, comes out on the 15th of July, which is the day this episode will go up. Really love it as a fan of this band, and it's very cool to be working of it. Uh, I also recommend The Talk the talk Show, which is my favorite podcast. It's a tech podcast, uh, but an episode this week uh, with guest um, Ben Thompson was really, really great, so I will link that as well. That's it. Thank you to everyone for listening to Off The Record this week. That's offtherecord.fm to check out show notes, to leave us any feedback. Jesse can be found at Twitter at Jesse Cannon. I'm at Z And our podcast is at Off the Record FM. We'll be back next week.